It is in the nature of the human being to face challenges. It's by the nature of his deep inner soul. We're required to do these things, just as salmon swim upstream. These are the words of one of America's most famous astronauts, the late Neil Armstrong, and the first man to set foot on the moon. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. In last week's episode, we discussed the first robotic explorations of the planet Mars, and possible plans for sending human beings there to explore in person soon. Such a journey would be undeniably challenging, but the rewards could be enormous. If we find microscopic life on this barren world, it would offer proof that humanity is not alone in the universe, that life in our solar system and throughout outer space may be fairly common. And if we don't, it would reveal that life in the universe may be far more precious, far more miraculous, and far more rare than we previously thought. As of today, this question ultimately remains unanswered. In our last episode, we followed the story of Robert Zubrin, a brilliant astronautical engineer who came up with a plan to achieve a Mars mission by mechanically producing fuel and oxygen from the thin Martian atmosphere, a plan that could be the key to the human exploration of Mars. Yet NASA wasn't interested in pursuing such a plan, at least not anytime soon, so Zubrin founded a nonprofit organization called the Mars Society. In the year 2001, the Society received a very generous donation of thousands of dollars from a man none of them have ever heard of, Elon Musk, a young man who wanted to revolutionize space travel and visit the planet Mars. Today, we hear his story. Born in South Africa, Musk's father was an engineer. At only 10 years old, Musk had been tested by IBM and found to have an unusually high aptitude for computer programming. Often the victim of bullying, young Musk usually preferred reading books at home rather than playing outside with other children. In the 1980s, at only 12 years old, Musk programmed his own computer game, which he named Blaster. Taking place in outer space, the goal of the game was to destroy an alien space freighter carrying a deadly cargo of hydrogen bombs. In those days, he called himself E.R. Musk, and he sold his video game to a South African magazine, netting him a $500 profit. As an adult in higher education, he earned degrees in physics and economics. In his 20s, he realized that all of the useful information and listings in telephone books had not yet been brought into the internet age. After writing a little code, Musk managed to create the first online city listings with his company, Zip2. That company 
was soon purchased for over $300 million in cash. It was at that time that Musk went on to create X.com, a website to facilitate online financial transactions. He had another online company competing with him, so he merged his company with the competition, and it became PayPal. And PayPal would soon sell for over a billion dollars. Musk once described the inner workings of his mind, saying, quote, For images and numbers, I can process their interrelationships and algorithmic relationships. Acceleration, momentum, kinetic energy, how those sorts of things will be affected by objects, comes through very vividly. But by around age 30, he seemed rather melancholy about the course of his life, telling his wife, quote, I am no longer a child prodigy. For all his success, Musk felt like he really hadn't done much to change the world around him or leave a lasting legacy. But since his childhood, space had always captivated Musk's imagination, and meandering onto NASA's website on his home computer, he wondered what sort of plans were in place for sending human beings to Mars. He found very little. For a moment, Musk thought that perhaps he was just unfamiliar with the layout of the NASA website. Surely there was a detailed plan of action and a decisive timetable somewhere. Looking elsewhere on the internet, he found the Mars Society and made a generous donation of $5,000. When Musk attended the fundraising dinner, he was sat at a table with Robert Zubrin, the founder of the Mars Society and film director James Cameron, both of whom, he suspected, wanted him to fund their respective projects. His discussions with Zubrin were recorded in a biography by Ashley Vance. Zubrin eagerly explained his vision, along with all the other potential projects different nations and organizations were working on in regards to the exploration of Mars. Musk listened eagerly. But Zubrin said this about their first meeting, quote, When I met Elon, it was apparent to me that although he had a scientific mind and he understood scientific principles, he did not know anything about rockets and space travel. Nothing. Indeed, Zubrin's famous Mars Direct plan debuted for the first time in 1990, before Musk's 20th birthday. He'd been campaigning in favor of the idea for decades, and now... He hoped it just might happen in his lifetime. If Zubrin could secure a finite amount of funding, he had an idea for a preliminary venture that would precede a human mission to Mars. He wanted to send mice into orbit around the Earth in a tiny spinning spacecraft. The centrifugal force of the rotating spacecraft would create artificial gravity, but would only be about one-third as strong as the gravity of the Earth or roughly the same as the lower gravity on Mars. The mice passengers would be fed and kept alive for months at a time to see just how their bodies would react to the low gravity, offering some of the first biomedical data on living creatures in Martian gravity, a crucial piece of information that could one day help human travelers to go to Mars and beyond. Robotic probes like the Viking missions in the 1970s revealed a great deal about the planet Mars and its many Earth-like features. 
While it will likely take human exploration to truly unlock the mysteries of Earth's neighbor in space, more recent missions continue to bring forth surprising revelations. A large robotic rover called Curiosity is currently driving around the surface of the red planet. Looking at photos of rusty colored rocks in a place called Gale Crater, a professor named Sanjeev Gupta found that they looked as if they had been chipped and smoothed out by erosion. But these rocks were far too big to be picked up by gusts of wind or dust storms. They could only have been eroded by liquid water. At a time in Mars's past, when rivers, lakes, and even shallow seas existed all over the planet's surface. In 2015, another probe, NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, snapped some peculiar photos of rocky hillsides on Mars, near the equator of the planet. The images seemed to show dark lines appearing and making their way downhill. These lines, dubbed Recurring Slope Lineae, or RSL, appeared during the warmest months of the year on Mars, and very close to the equator. But why? Were they tiny rock slides, or perhaps something else? Some have suggested that if there were chunks of ice frozen in the Martian soil, in the warmest regions of the planet, then it might be just warm enough for that water to melt when temperatures rose above freezing, which they do in equatorial regions. Does liquid water still flow occasionally in tiny waterfalls on the surface of Mars? Many astronomers have been skeptical since the discovery, and the truth is, we really don't know. At least not yet. What we do know is that frozen water does exist on the surface of Mars, in the planet's polar ice caps, and other areas. In 2018, the discovery of a subglacial lake below the Martian surface was announced. It was found by analyzing radar readings of the planet. Consisting of liquid water, the lake is 20 kilometers or 12 miles wide, and it exists beneath a shell of solid ice about a mile thick. Back in 2001, Musk was certainly intrigued by Zubrin's ideas for Mars exploration, but ideas in Musk's own entrepreneurial brain had always grown and evolved very quickly, and he had a naturally overactive imagination that accompanied his intellect. He became captivated by the idea of doing something even bigger than Zubrin's mice experiment. Perhaps he could send his own robotic probe to land on Mars. Once there, the tiny spacecraft could scoop up some Martian soil and place it in a mechanical glass greenhouse, planting seeds and growing plant life inside, showing that crops and one day human colonies could exist on the red planet. One botanist told him there were resilient mustard seeds that might just perhaps grow in the rocky soil. It would be the furthest that life on Earth had ever proliferated out into the cosmos. The project was dubbed Mars Oasis. There were drawbacks, though. If the plant didn't grow 
or withered and died in the inhospitable environment of Mars, with the world's media watching, it would only reaffirm the idea that Mars was too dangerous, too expensive, and too inhospitable, both for plants and human beings. There was another problem, too. The cost of simply launching a rocket off the planet Earth, let alone a mission to Mars, would have been enormously expensive, even for a man of such means as Elon Musk. Eating lunch with a close friend, Musk confided in him that he was now obsessed with investing in space, somehow. His friend thought that Musk was looking to break into real estate, or perhaps to start purchasing office buildings. No, not office space, Musk exclaimed. Outer space. Some PayPal executives took a weekend trip to Las Vegas, and Musk was invited to come along. The executives later recalled sitting in a cabana at the Hard Rock Cafe, chatting and enjoying a few cold drinks under the sweltering sun of the Nevada desert. Yet Musk didn't behave as though he was on a relaxing, jovial vacation. He sat pensively in the cabana, studying a tattered, faded technical manual from the old Soviet Union. A manual on rockets. Musk was planning to visit Russia, with the hopes of purchasing an old intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, to refurbish it, and use it as a space launch vehicle for his mission to Mars. He would be accompanied by a man named Jim Cantrell, who had worked on multiple classified projects for governments in several countries. Cantrell had done so much business in Russia, he had once been accused of espionage. So in the fall of 2001, Musk, Cantrell, and a few other colleagues flew to Moscow to meet with Russian aerospace companies. The Soviet Union had collapsed just one decade prior. Russia was a new nation, quickly embracing capitalism. But many of the meetings were less than productive. In laid-back settings, the Russian businessmen drank vodka and sipped coffee, speaking casually with Musk and his team while they ate plates of sausages. Most of them smoked so many cigarettes that a lingering haze of nicotine hung over the room perpetually. Musk quickly grew impatient with the process. To outer space, one said, raising a glass of vodka and proposing a toast. How much for one ICBM? Musk asked bluntly. Taken aback by Musk's offer, the Russians looked at each other and exchanged a few whispers. Eight million each, they said. Musk frowned. I'll make you a counteroffer. Eight million for two. They chuckled and shook their heads. After that, things went downhill quickly. They spoke to Musk in a condescending and derisive tone, as if he were a small child. One of them implied that he didn't even have the money to buy one ICBM, that the whole meeting was a waste of their time. When they went back to the airport in Moscow, on a brisk, snowy afternoon, Musk was discouraged. Though Cantrell and others were simply glad to be going back to the United States in one piece. Once on the plane, the men ordered a few alcoholic beverages, while Musk sat with his laptop, typing quickly and aggressively. Always full of energy, Musk never seemed to wind down. Pulling up a spreadsheet on his computer, Musk suggested 
that they simply build the rockets themselves. Looking at the cost of materials and development, he'd done all the math, and he genuinely believed it could work. If they made a business of it, launching smaller satellites and payloads into Earth orbit, they could provide a service and turn a profit. So in the weeks and months that followed, Musk immersed himself in the study of aerodynamics, astrodynamics, and thermodynamics, reading every textbook he could get his hands on, determined to transform himself into a self-taught rocket scientist. Robert Zubrin was deeply pessimistic about the venture. Many ambitious billionaires had tried to fund their own aerospace companies in the hopes of revolutionizing space travel, but they usually went broke in the process. At that time, space was still largely the domain of governments, not private sector companies. But Musk didn't heed Zubrin's warnings. The recent sale of PayPal had turned a lucrative profit and gave Musk tens of millions of dollars in cash to pump into the new venture. He would spend most of his net worth on the new company. In 2002, Space Exploration Technologies, or SpaceX, was founded. Just outside of Los Angeles, they purchased a 75,000 square foot warehouse and Musk himself could be seen unloading trucks, helping to carry computers and office equipment into the new building. Dozens of desks were placed in the middle of the warehouse so engineers could collaborate personally with welders on the factory floor. In just a few months' time, Musk hoped to launch his first rocket. He figured he could be landing robotic probes on Mars by around 2010, and human beings would follow shortly thereafter. An avid Star Wars fan, Musk named his first rocket Falcon, after Han Solo's Millennium Falcon in the films. Combing over a large world map, they searched for the perfect launch site. The closer to the equator, the better. NASA launched their rockets from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Russia launched their rockets from an outpost on the plains of Kazakhstan. Musk found his launch site out past Hawaii on a tiny atoll in the Pacific Ocean named Kwajalein. It wasn't far from an area once used by the United States Army as a missile test site during the Cold War. For all of Musk's brilliance, his timetable for SpaceX had been far too ambitious. He was building his rocket from scratch, and even with skilled engineers working for him, there were many delays. With tall palm trees and views of the deep blue ocean on all sides, the island they had selected seemed like a paradise but it felt remote. One SpaceX employee said sometimes it seemed as though they were living in an episode of Gilligan's Island, but with rockets. The engineers slept on cots and sleeping bags inside a trailer on the island. They built a hangar for the rocket components along with a launch pad, 
but tall grass and tropical plants dominated most of the island. Musk's colleagues tried to convince him to construct a paved road between the hangar and the launch pad, but Musk refused. He had spent more than enough money already. And so, workers used logs to slowly and carefully roll the Falcon 1 rocket over uneven ground to the launch site. Finally, in the spring of 2006, after countless setbacks, they were ready. A countdown ensued, and the Falcon 1 rocket roared to life. Less than 30 seconds into the flight, a fuel line began leaking, and it started a fire in the first stage of the rocket. The long metal cylinder came crashing back to the earth, falling into the ocean less than a mile from the test site. It was later found that the salty ocean air had corroded one of the rocket components. In one letter, Musk would later say, quote, A friend of mine wrote me to remind me that only nine out of the first twenty Atlas launches succeeded, and only nine out of twenty-one for the Soyuz. Come hell or high water, we're going to make this work. Musk's friend was right. For the famous Werner von Braun, while working in Nazi Germany, many of his early V-2 rockets exploded in fireballs after leaving the launch pad, well before he ever found success as a rocket engineer. When the Soviet chief designer, Sergei Korolyov, was constructing his R-7 ICBM, he saw so many failures that he was harassed by late-night calls from the Soviet secret police. And yet, today, the R-7 series of rockets is the most common in the history of space travel. Perhaps Musk was in good company. They went to work improving the Falcon 1 rocket. Nearly one year later, in the spring of 2007, Musk and his team prepared to make another launch attempt. They even test-fired the engines once beforehand to ensure that they would work. As another countdown ensued, every employee of SpaceX held their breath. Flames erupted out of the rocket engines, and the Falcon 1 rose off the launch pad in a cloud of smoke, hurtling into the clear blue skies above. It was performing flawlessly as it flew into the upper atmosphere, leaving the Earth behind. Then, about five minutes into the flight, miles above the surface of the Earth, shaking and oscillations began in the rocket. Despite skimming over the edge of space, the rocket failed to achieve orbit, slowly falling back to Earth somewhere over the Pacific Ocean. Even so, Musk would later claim that this was merely a test flight and he said that systems on board the Falcon 1 were 95% successful. But privately, many at SpaceX believed there was cause for concern. Launching rockets was an expensive business, and the company could afford to fail perhaps only one final time. Hopefully, though, success was still within their grasp. Elon Musk, SpaceX's chief engineer, certainly seemed to think so, it was now the summer of 2008, and they were ready to make another launch attempt. Like many of their previous launch attempts, there had been countless delays. Loading helium into the Falcon 1 rocket had taken longer than expected, but they had just a few minutes left within their launch window. 
After a quick countdown, Musk's rocket rose off the launch pad for a third time. This time, though, there were problems when they ignited the second stage of the rocket. And once again, they failed to achieve orbit. For years now, Musk dreamed of sending human beings to Mars. But just reaching outer space had proven exceedingly difficult. As the chief engineer at SpaceX, he ultimately bore the responsibility for these failures. Musk would later say, quote, The reason I ended up being chief designer was not because I wanted to. It's because I couldn't hire anyone. Nobody good would join us. So I ended up being the chief engineer by default, and I messed up the first three launches. It seemed after every launch, they were investigating what went wrong while simultaneously trying to put on a brave face for the media and minimize any bad publicity for the company. A mere three days after the rocket failure, SpaceX publicly announced that they knew what had gone wrong and that the problem could be corrected. If the next launch was not a complete success, SpaceX would likely go broke. They would have to shut down and admit that, like so many other space companies, they just couldn't make private spaceflight a reality. Zubrin's skepticism towards the endeavor now seemed almost prophetic. In 2008, they made one final last-ditch effort. The rocket had been 95% successful on its second test flight, but this time, everything had to work perfectly. The Falcon 1 rocket sat upright on the launch pad as palm trees in the background swayed in the tropical Pacific breeze. The first stage of the rocket, which they had named Merlin, performed flawlessly. Then the second stage of the rocket ignited behind it, pushing the craft ever higher into the outer boundaries of the Earth's atmosphere. Then, finally, the last stage shut down right on time. The Falcon 1 rocket had reached Earth orbit. The engineers in the tiny control center shrieked with joy. Cheers and warm hugs followed instantly. SpaceX would live to fight another day. Zubrin was impressed. As the year 2008 came to a close, SpaceX eagerly awaited to hear back from NASA about just who precisely would be the recipient of a $1.6 billion contract to launch food and supplies to the International Space Station. The contract would be a major shot in the arm for SpaceX. But the infamous 2008 financial crisis was in full swing by this point. Perhaps the U.S. government wanted to be cautious. It was unclear whether SpaceX's recent success overshadowed its past failures. But SpaceX got the contract. There had been many at NASA who saw and admired the efforts of the new company and had campaigned hard for SpaceX. Zubrin, who had been deeply skeptical of Musk's efforts, later offered him the highest compliment that could be given to anyone in private sector business. Quote, He didn't just throw some money at the problem and quit as soon as it got tough. He put not only his fortune, but his heart, mind, and soul into it. He learned rocketry himself, and he didn't give up when his first three launches failed. 
Fortune favors the brave. Fortune favors the tough. And fortune favors the smart. And he had all three. In 2012, SpaceX made their first delivery of cargo to the International Space Station. Today, they are famous for being the first private company to launch and return spacecraft from orbit. Musk's rockets fall back into the atmosphere, landing on their own. Footage of such rocket landings looks precise, but also surreal. Less like watching the performance of an advanced machine, and more like simply rewinding a video of a rocket launch. Werner von Braun had conceived of landing rockets in a similar fashion, but it didn't actually become reality until SpaceX came along. Though for all of Musk's successes, he has yet to send a single astronaut into outer space, let alone anywhere else. But there is likely far more to come from Elon Musk and SpaceX within the next decade and beyond. He has plans to send astronauts to orbit the moon, and of course, eventually, to send astronauts to Mars. Consider the boldness of such a dream. At its closest approach to the Earth, in the course of its orbit around the Sun, Mars is still tens of millions of miles away. At its farthest from the Earth, Mars is well over a hundred million miles away. At such distances, if something went wrong for astronauts on the surface of Mars, a rescue mission would likely be impossible. At the very least, in the event of disaster, it would take many months to get anyone or anything launched to Mars via chemical rockets. Imagine what is required to transport astronauts across the vacuum of space just to get into orbit around Mars. It would be a journey of six or perhaps even nine months with conventional rocket technology to cross the void of interplanetary space for another world. There are many concerns about the human body's exposure to radiation also. Occasionally, there are large stormy eruptions of plasma on the sun, known as coronal mass ejections, which fling an enormous cloud of electrified gas into outer space. At far northern latitudes, these particles strike our upper atmosphere, creating a light show known as the Aurora Borealis. In outer space, they could be deadly. Luckily, when sending Apollo astronauts to visit the moon, there were not any large, major solar eruptions. So the astronauts came back to Earth in perfect health. But a longer duration mission in outer space would increase the risk of encountering such solar storms. It is very likely that a tiny protective room would have to be built inside the spacecraft, a sort of solar storm shelter. If NASA detected a coronal mass ejection from the sun, the astronauts would have a few minutes warning to take refuge in the shelter. Outer space is also filled with cosmic rays, charged particles from outside our solar system whizzing through space at nearly the speed of light. On Earth, our atmosphere and magnetic field protects us from them. In space, they pass right through us. 
exposure to radiation could increase an astronaut's risk of cancer. And once on Mars, the planet's thin atmosphere won't provide much protection from radiation either. But it does seem like it would be entirely possible for astronauts to survive the journey to Mars and back. We know that the physical effects of radiation are different for men and for women. We also know that radiation affects older people in different ways than it affects younger people. So the characteristics of each crew member selected for the first mission might very well depend, at least partially, on their age and gender. Some questions have been raised about the psychological issues that might arise from being in a cramped, confined spacecraft for such extensive periods of time. But several experiments have confirmed that crews on Earth can live and work together in a civil, even friendly manner in confined spaces for extended periods. The longest of these tests was Mars 500, a 520-day psychological experiment at the Russian Academy of Sciences, where a crew of six men were placed in a confined space, a sort of simulated spacecraft, and were forced to live and work together for well over a year. There were stressful days, and one crew member experienced difficulty sleeping near the end of the experiment, but they cooperated, solved problems, and celebrated holidays together. Interpersonal conflicts of any kind were almost unheard of. Each crew member wanted the experiment to succeed, and so it did. Once in Mars orbit, future astronauts will get the first up-close and personal views that human eyes have ever beheld of another planet. The sights before them will be nothing short of awe-inspiring. But then they will face a new challenge, landing on Mars. Humans have personally landed on the moon, but that world is a much smaller body with no atmosphere. Even though Mars's atmosphere is only one one-hundredth as thick as the Earth's, it presents a unique set of challenges. Precise wind speeds in the atmosphere are tough to predict and can change rapidly. InSight is the most recent space probe to be sent to the planet Mars, and it landed successfully near the end of 2018. It will go on to study Martian geology. Rob Manning, NASA's chief engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, said it takes thousands of steps to go from the top of the atmosphere to the surface, and each one of them has to go perfectly for the mission to be a success. By the time a space probe successfully lands on Mars and sends a signal back to the Earth, it takes a few minutes for that signal to cross the interplanetary void and reach the Earth. The anxiety that the complicated landing process evokes has sometimes been called the seven minutes of terror. Consider the large rover that NASA landed on Mars in 2012, Curiosity. The spacecraft that contained the robotic rover had to enter the atmosphere going over 10,000 miles per hour at a 12-degree angle so that it would not be burnt to a crisp. Luckily, 
there was a large heat shield in place to protect the rover. A massive fireball engulfed the spacecraft as temperatures built up to well over 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. The atmosphere succeeded in slowing down the spacecraft, at least a little, about 10 miles above the surface, a little closer to the ground, with the craft falling at 1,000 miles per hour, a massive supersonic parachute was deployed, the largest and strongest of its kind ever produced, large enough to catch the thin Martian atmosphere in its billowing fabric, slowing the spacecraft's plunge to just 200 miles per hour, yet still too fast for it to land without being smashed to pieces. Since the heat shield was no longer needed by this phase, it popped off and fell to the surface, allowing radar to have a clear view of the area below. A mile above the planet, small rockets were fired to slow the craft down even more. The second the spacecraft made contact with the surface, the rockets shut down. If they had burned for a second or two longer, the craft would get flipped over and crushed. But Curiosity made it to the surface of Mars, safely and in one piece, exploring the surface and taking photographs even to this day. Human beings will have to go through a similar set of steps to land on Mars, and in a much, much larger spacecraft. Some critics suggest that the whole process is just too dangerous. Astronauts might very well burn up in the Martian atmosphere or crash onto the rocky surface. Some say that human beings shouldn't even attempt such a journey, because more sophisticated robots could easily accomplish all the tasks involved in the exploration of Mars. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Zubrin disagrees. He says, quote, The most important questions about Mars are on the search for life, past and present. So we're interested in fossil hunting, on Earth, fossil hunting requires hiking long distances through difficult terrain. It involves digging and pickaxe work. It involves delicate work, intuition, and following up on clues. This is way beyond the ability of robots. Zubrin's Mars Society has built two practice stations in remote areas where scientists and engineers simulate explorations of the surface of Mars. When they leave the small living quarters in their simulated habitat on Earth to go exploring, their trips have to be timed very carefully, because future astronauts on the surface of Mars will only be able to explore on foot for as long as the oxygen in their spacesuit will last them. One of these simulated explorations of Mars took place in the deserts of Utah, where the terrain itself looks very similar to the sandy, rocky terrain of Mars. Naturally, the explorers sought to recover any and all rock samples that would be of scientific interest. One curious rock seemed different than all the rest and was brought back to the simulated habitat. Only upon closer examination there was it determined that the rock was in fact a fossilized dinosaur bone. Notifying the U.S. Bureau of Land Management of the unique find, a paleontologist would later return to the same area years later, discovering one of the largest dinosaur bone finds in North American history. 
a remotely controlled rover on wheels, would not have been able to climb into that canyon. And even if it could, it is highly debatable whether scientists on Earth could have looked at the few grainy pictures it sent back and determined precisely which rocks would be of scientific interest to collect. Even then, if scientists on Earth wanted to get a closer look at the rock or evaluate it more thoroughly, sending that rock back to the planet Earth for more tests would take a good deal of time and resources. As costly as it is to send astronaut scientists to Mars, they will still prove to be infinitely more effective than any robot. It is possible that there are fossilized skeletons of extraterrestrial creatures of all kinds somewhere in the Martian rock and soil. But the reality is, as of right now, there's no way to be sure. After about a year of exploring the surface of Mars, the crew will have to launch their spacecraft outside of the planet's atmosphere, into Martian orbit, and begin the long journey home. Or, perhaps not. In one discussion about Mars, Apollo-era NASA flight director Chris Kraft said that returning an astronaut crew to Earth would be ten times more costly than leaving them on Mars to establish a permanent colony. Launching human beings off the surface of Mars is a risky and complicated task. NASA engineer Jim McLean wrote a 2006 paper where he described the technical challenges of such a launch as, quote, a daunting technical problem. After all, we have never launched any of our robot explorers off the surface of Mars, let alone any larger craft with human beings inside of it. And more consecutive months traveling in deep space carries risks also. Zubrin says that a one-way Mars journey is something we should at least consider. Some might say that a one-way trip to Mars is insane, but many European colonists did not travel to the continent of North America hundreds of years ago with the intention of exploring for a year and then returning to Europe. They came with the intention of staying for the purposes of colonizing a figurative new world and building a permanent settlement there. What if colonists on Mars could manufacture their own oxygen from the Martian atmosphere, just as Zubrin has suggested? What if colonists could grow their own crops on the surface of Mars the way Musk imagined in his Mars Oasis project? What if astronauts could protect themselves from the radiation on the surface, perhaps building a habitat inside a cave or underground? What if astronauts could melt some of the large reserves of frozen water on Mars, giving them liquid water for their new civilization. They would have a day just over 24 hours long, almost exactly the same as a day on Earth. It would not be an easy life by any means, but human beings have a rich history of living, working, and exploring extreme environments for long periods of time. And there are plenty of individuals alive today, brave enough to take a risk on just such a lifetime mission. Apollo 11 astronaut Buzz Aldrin, the second man to walk on the moon, approves of just such a plan to travel to Mars. He said, quote, When you go to Mars, you need to have made the decision that you're there permanently. 
The more people we have there, the more it can become a sustaining environment, except for very rare exceptions, the people who go to Mars shouldn't be coming back. Elon Musk once cracked a joke and said, I want to die on Mars, just not on impact. A private Dutch organization called Mars One floated the idea to establish a permanent settlement on Mars by sending astronauts on a one-way trip. It's an interesting proposition, but the organization is small. It is not an aerospace company, and it is doubtful that they can raise the money to accomplish it. Even so, they received literally hundreds of thousands of applications when they announced their plans. Perhaps SpaceX will beat them there. Or maybe not. There are many companies today taking an interest in Mars. Lockheed Martin took part in creating the Orion space capsule for NASA, which can carry a small crew of astronauts to the moon, and perhaps one day to Mars also. The Orion space capsule has been tested in outer space, though it is yet to fly with astronauts inside of it. Lockheed Martin has also proposed Mars Base Camp, a space station in Mars orbit that could directly supervise robotic probes operating on the surface of Mars, even remote-controlling rovers, and could be a precursor to man-Mars landings. It's a far more modest idea than anything Mars One or SpaceX have proposed, and perhaps more pragmatic, too. Billionaire Jeff Bezos founded the space company Blue Origin, and they too have been making progress in the business of space travel, slowly but surely moving forward. But what about Elon Musk? What are his ultimate plans for the Red Planet? At the 2016 meeting of the International Astronautical Congress in Mexico, Musk unveiled a proposal for a massive spacecraft called the Interplanetary Transport System, or ITS, that could carry perhaps 500 tons of cargo into outer space, and said that within the next half century, he wanted to place a colony of a million people on Mars. Such a plan raised more than a few eyebrows. A year later, at the International Astronautical Congress in Australia, he offered a clearer picture of his future plans for Mars. In the coming years, SpaceX will plan to phase out their Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy Lift rockets and construct something even more ambitious, the BFR, or Big Falcon Rocket. The BFR will loft a spacecraft carrying a hundred people into Earth orbit. Then, once in Earth orbit, the spacecraft will refill its tanks with methane and oxygen and set out for the planet Mars. It will carry about 150 tons of cargo, far less than the proposed ITS craft, but still an impressive amount of cargo, a space vehicle more powerful than the Saturn V rocket that sent Apollo astronauts to the moon. They will rely on state-of-the-art Raptor engines with liquid methane fuel. If such engines work as planned, they will have the highest chamber pressure of any such engine ever built. Musk says the craft will be made of carbon fiber composites, but some aerospace experts say this is a risky proposition since the environment of space is very taxing and carbon fiber parts 
or hard to repair here on Earth, let alone in outer space. Musk says that he imagines, someday, the craft's landing reliability will be on par with that of the safest commercial airliners. He wants the price of a ticket to Mars to eventually go down to around $200,000. Zubrin said that this new plan from Musk was far more practical than the one he had made a year prior, and it shows that Musk is indeed serious. The aspect of Musk's 2017 plan that raised the most serious questions was his timetable. He wants to launch unmanned cargo ships to Mars in 2022. And when the next launch window opens in 2024, he plans to send a craft with astronauts. 2024. Musk said, The year is not a typo, though it is aspirational. Musk's most dedicated fans believe that his plan will indeed become a reality someday very soon. But critics say that Musk's presentation on Mars, for all of its boldness and inspiration, was rather vague on many details. In his presentation, he spoke for less than an hour and took no questions from the audience. For all of Musk's unparalleled, unequivocal accomplishments in space travel, his timetables and goals are not always realistic. In 2001, he was imagining sending spacecraft to Mars by the early 2010s. Instead, he spent the time between 2001 and 2008 just getting one rocket into Earth orbit. In 2017, he announced that SpaceX was going to send a small group of astronauts to fly around the moon in the year 2018. But 2018 came and went. SpaceX didn't send any astronauts into Earth orbit, let alone to the moon. A trip to the moon is still on Musk's agenda, but he now says it won't happen until sometime in the early 2020s. Remember, Werner von Braun imagined that his plan for a human landing on Mars would be a reality by 1982. Musk said, quote, My vision is for a fully reusable rocket transport system between Earth and Mars that is able to refuel on Mars. That is very important, so you don't have to carry the return fuel when you go there. Musk certainly does have an aspirational vision for visiting and eventually colonizing the planet Mars, and it is indeed based on reusable rockets, which he has already had a great deal of success with, but the notion of a spacecraft refueling on Mars, so it does not need to carry return fuel along with it, was an epiphany and exploration revealed to the world by Robert Zubrin over a decade before SpaceX was founded, and long before Musk ever dreamt of Mars. Musk's vision stands on the shoulders of Zubrin's. SpaceX stands on the shoulders of Mars Direct. Musk recently constructed a large, full-size test vehicle at a site near the coast of southern Texas that looked strikingly similar to the craft that he says will soon carry astronauts to Mars. Pedestrians in Texas often stop by the side of the road to take selfies with this massive craft, Upon seeing photos of the vehicle online, some SpaceX fans initially wondered if perhaps Musk had somehow finished the vehicle far ahead of schedule and that it would be ready to fly soon. Musk calls it the SpaceX Starship, 
which is something of a misnomer, because the finished version is meant to fly to nearby planets, not nearby stars. With three large aerodynamic fins at the base and no windows, the craft's shiny chrome appearance is due to its construction from stainless steel. When it was first constructed, residents thought that someone nearby was building a water tower. But this shiny test vehicle will not be the vehicle flying to Mars. In fact, this test vehicle won't even be flying to outer space. The crewed machine will simply test its engines in the Earth's atmosphere, flying, at most, to a height of 10,000 or perhaps 15,000 feet. The real SpaceX Starship will be a far, far more complex piece of machinery. Recently, some strong Texas wind gusts blew over the flimsy test vehicle, denting and damaging it. Recent reports say that weeks or months will now be needed to repair it. Even when it comes to experimental rockets that aren't meant to leave Earth's atmosphere, there are always delays and unexpected setbacks. So it is with SpaceX. So it will be with human beings' first journey to Mars. And so our epic journey comes to an end today at Universe University. We broke our earlier series on the race to the moon down into three parts. Our series on Mars was only two parts. That's because the final chapters of this story have yet to be written. Perhaps some of the ears listening to my words right now may be among the first human beings to set foot on a foreign planet. Perhaps they might even be the first to reveal some profound, decisive revelations about life itself, about whether we are alone in the cosmos. It is indeed within the very nature and soul of the human being to face challenges, to explore new frontiers and new worlds. At the outset of the space age, the late President Kennedy promised that his nation would land men on the moon, but said, quote, I realize that this is, in some measure, an act of faith and vision, for we do not know now what benefits await us. Human beings do not yet know what benefits await us on the Red Planet, but we know that this journey, like all great journeys of discovery we have gone on in the past, will change the way we look at ourselves and our place in the universe. Robert Zubrin once said that although human beings are not indigenous to the planet Mars, we're not technically indigenous to the planet Earth either. Human beings, or Homo sapiens' original home was in Africa, as hairless creatures that evolved for warm environments. As nomads, we crossed vast geographic landscapes into strange, new, harsh, frigid environments which we had never seen or experienced before. Such has been the entire course of human civilization. We have always been explorers, curious about what new adventure awaits us over the distant horizon, beyond what we can see with our naked eyes. And yet, there are no human beings who can bear witness to the subjective trials, challenges, epiphanies, and rewards that a journey to Mars will bring. So perhaps it would be best to close today 
with the words of a great explorer from another time and place named Ernest Shackleton, a man who, roughly a century ago, set foot on a lost world, the last unexplored continent on the planet Earth, Antarctica. This is what he said about the journey. We had seen God in his splendors, heard the text that nature renders. We had reached the naked soul of man.